right. Hello and welcome to the Swing Smarter monthly newsletter, actually the Swing Smarter hitting training podcast. And today I have a special guest. And this guest I saw on Sammy's podcast, Playball Kid and Brian Eisenberg. And this is Dr. Brett McCabe. And uh, first, I want to welcome him to the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thanks for coming, Dr. Brett. And Dr. Brett is, as I said, is a treat is a licensed clinical and sports performance psychologist. And I hear he's over at the, in the, the athletic department at the University of Alabama. So that's I pretty cool. Today. And yeah, he's exactly. a former athlete. Now, is that former athlete like college? So I played baseball at LSU. Okay. So. Love it. So, so fellow baseball yes, guy. Absolutely. I love it. He's the founder of Mindside and his website, which we'll have him plug at the end too. You can find it at brettmccabe.com. And Brett is spelled B-H-R-E-T-T. And the McCabe is M-C-C-A-B-E.com. And we'll let him plug that at the end there as well. Um, anything else you want to add to that? No, Brett? man, let's get it. Let's get after it. Let's get there's after a pitcher, it. There's a pitcher coming into a hitting podcast. Let's go. <laughs> oh, you're a pitcher. All right, cool. I like it. But hey, you know what? What I tell my hitters is that us hitters can learn a lot from pitchers and pitchers can learn a lot from hitters. And right. we're, we're currently, I'm helping part-time at a, at a local high school here. And we're talking about pitch recognition cues and cues and clues that pitchers give away pitches a lot of times. And so what that does for our team is if our hitters are picking that from our pitchers, I tell my hitters, have your way with your pitcher, with your own team's pitcher. And then afterwards, tell them what they were doing. So that not only are you benefiting, you, you get rewarded for the, the pick in the queue and clue, but you're also helping your pitcher out so that when he goes, when you're actually going to war, that he's not going to be making that same mistake against the other team. Excellent. Exactly right. <laughs> so let's start with the first topic. I have a couple here and, and uh, I got some one big one that uh, we'll, we'll leave as a mystery for the people as we, we get there, but we'll get there before the end of our time. Uh, so sports injuries. So we have dealing with sports injuries and athletes and how they deal with them. We've had probably almost half a dozen ankle ankle rolls in these last couple of weeks with the guys out on the field. Now go into a little bit, like maybe what are the top two mistakes that athletes make when it comes to dealing with those injuries, um, you know, psychologically? Yeah. I mean, the psychological side of injury is massive. And, and I think for a long time, we've overlooked it because we assume that as the medical side healed, we'd be ready to return to play, but you know, an injury, the psychological side is what got me into psychology. It's, it's, I had some shoulder problems and, and that's what turned me on to the psychological side is that one thing is athletes try to get back too fast and they do it not by trying to return to the field. That's every athlete. Every athlete here is four to six weeks. They try to do it in three to five or two to four. But the problem is, is that they try to, they try to assume that their previous level of play or functioning is going to return at a much quicker process. And they forget the fact that what got them to that previous level of play was there was a lot of up and downs in it. And so we tend to overvalue our past and over glorify the things that we did and compare that to what the struggles we're in today. And that becomes a unfortunate or really difficult challenge. So I think that's one of the big ones. Second thing to do is, or the second thing is, is that when we return um, to play, I mean, there, to me, there's a couple of different stages that the mind goes through. But the last one is return to play. And when we get into the return to play aspects is that we forget that, that when we go out to play, there takes a period of grace and forgiveness to realize that 
every time I, you know, I run the bases, I'm not checking my ankle. Every time I'm snapping off a breaking ball, I'm not thinking about my elbow because that takes some trust to be rebuilt there so that the mind can shift away from, I was able to execute without damage. I was able to execute without pain. I was able to execute with a purpose. And as we move through those cycles, we want to get to the execution with purpose, not the prevention or the re-experiencing that, that often comes with injury. I love that. And uh, some of the other things, I think, too, the pressure where it could be a coach pressure to get back. I remember in, mm-hmm. in college, I had a, had an army. I was an outfielder, but I had a, uh, I think I probably tore my labrum, but they didn't, mm-hmm. we didn't do any surgeries. Same, same with me. Yep, yeah. Same with me. <laughs> and mm-hmm. <laughs> Painful, like your arms yep. on fire. And we didn't know yep. that. And I think there's just a pressure to get back into play. And like I said, it's either from the coach or I just, I was talking to one of our players the other day that one of the ankle turns and it was dad, dad saying, you need to tough it out. You need to get out there. So what, what's your advice for for some of those athletes? Well, we know we have a much better understanding of the rehabilitative process now. Right. And it's not about mental toughness, about being able to play through pain. I think, you know, look, we used to withhold water from people when they trained uh, and that didn't make them tougher. It just put them at more risk. (laughs) I think we have to understand that the external pressures that many of our athletes are facing. And as an athlete, you know, we want to get recruited. We want to move to the next level. We want to earn playing time. And we also know that everybody says you shouldn't lose your job if you, you know, if if you're hurt, but it happens, Mm -hmm. right? It does happen. It's a natural reality. Um, And so I think some of the pressure that's there, we have to look at it and, and, and realize that those pressures are true. They are authentic, but the rehabilitative process is pretty empirically research-based and we have to trust the, the professionals that knowing what we're going to do. One thing that we do know, and this comes from the um, world of Titleist Performance Institute, which does a lot of work in golf and injuries that they're the ones that were behind on base U right. is that the, ex- the experience or the presence of a, of a current injury increases the risk of a more traumatic injury. Mm. Because what happens is we overcompromise, we overaccommodate, we, we're focused on it versus going out there and playing. I mean, as a pitcher, every pitcher wants to go out there without having any soreness in their arm or, you know, but there's certain things that you're okay with. There's other ones that tend to be more of an issue. Well, if you've got somebody like an ankle, it takes time and it takes strengthening of the ligaments and the tendons in that area to be able to play. And it's not about toughing it out because you're going to see mechanical changes too. And we also don't want to have a compromise of the overall joint over the next four to six months. So sometimes a little bit of investment on the front end and managing those external pressures is critical. There's one other pressure that often is overlooked and it happens when the team moves on without the player Mm. and the players left behind the players, not traveling the players, not whatever. And I always encourage my teams to give a role to the injured players, whether it's, you know, charting pitches or anything like that. I think it's critical and, and it keeps the player involved and it helps them at least feel like they're contributing to the overall team process. I think that's a great point, Dr. McCabe, that, like you said, you give them a chart, you give them something to do. Um, like a lot of times we see at football games, whether it's in college or professionally, we see the the second quarterback, second in line quarterback is is typically helping out with a lot of the play calling and and things like that. And and I think yep. one of the guys that came from Fresno State, David Carr, you know, you got Derek Carr's <laughs> with the I think the Raiders uh, now. Yep. But uh, I played. I was coming in as a freshman when David was a senior going out and he was going through the whole draft thing and, and all that kind of stuff. And it was kind of cool to see him play. I think it was for the Titans when he got drafted, but 
it was like that first year or second year. And then he just didn't play. It was just crazy mm-hmm. seeing him on the sidelines and he got paid. He got paid. <laughs> he got paid lots Poor of money man. to sit on the sidelines, but I always saw him active on the sidelines. I always saw him helping out his, the, the first string quarterback, wherever that was, or helping out wide receivers or things like that. So I, I think that's great advice. And I, you know, I hope some coaches out there hear that. And, and, and I think we also, the, the other things that we can do is, I mean, look, if we're going to keep our mind engaged, that's critical. If we, if the physical side of the body is compromised, doesn't mean the mind can't work on visualization, can't work on planning and preparation. It, it's keeping us engaged in the game. I think the other thing to that is coaches, families, parents, everybody, we, we have to give the right to the player to improve over time. And so we, we oftentimes take snapshots and try to predict their next four to six months. Mm-hmm. And those snapshots are just snapshots in time. And we have to give players the right to improve. And, and do it on their schedule. Everybody's running a different race. Everybody's on a different time frame. And while we want everybody to peak at the right time, it just doesn't work like that. Yeah, I agree. Totally. You got some guys that just are like Mr. Glass. They're getting, yep. they're breaking stuff or they're, they're rolling ankles a, a lot. And I was yep. lucky. I, I pulled muscles and strained stuff, but I never really broke anything until one of my last games in college. And you're mm-hmm. right. Everybody has their own journey and that, and it, takes different forks and things and unfortunately for some players it takes many forks in the in, right. in the in the realm of injury yeah very Correct. cool great great advice um now i want to move on to more of that that self-talk that players cool. have and and one of my hitters who i've i've had him been working with him since he was probably 10 years old now he's a junior in high school and he's very hard on himself big guys already committed to a d1 college baseball program uh, verbally cool. committed and very hard on himself and I'm just trying to talk him out of it. So what I want to get your advice on, and, and I'm sorry for the language here, but this is one of the terms that he's oh. used before is, uh, you know, I ask him how, how, how you doing, how you feeling? So, well, my swing is an abortion oh. and, and that's a horrible term to oh. give to a swing, but that's, that's the negative. That's how he feels going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, we have to understand that perfectionism. Right. And, and a lot of us want to crap all over perfectionism, but it works until it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And it works until we get to a point where we can't control many of the factors. And so one of the things that happens is we look at technique, whether it's throwing motion or hitting mechanics. We look at base, you know, golf mechanics or whatever the different factors are. And we assume that a complete and, and absolute perfection of mechanics equals complete and utter or complete and total domination. And it's not true. Right. That's just not true, because if that was the case, then some of these athletes that we see that have absolutely perfect swings would dominate every time. Mm. It's about the application of the skills that they have to the ever changing demands of the game. And so a player who's so caught up in technique is going to be a quarter second slower in the way that they process information. And if you understand the absolute miracle of the neuro, the brain's cognitive processing, how it works to identify targets, identify patterns, pick up speed, pick up stuff like that. All those critical things, right? That quarter second slowing of trying to make sure the technique is right, you're too late. So the high speed Amtrak that's working in our brain is going past it. When we walk, we don't naturally put our foot down the right way every single time. Mm -hmm. We accommodate it because of the way that the brain functions. And one of the things I try to get everybody to understand is that the brain is not built for consistency of movement. If that was the case, then we'd be at risk of being somebody's dinner, 
if you think about the evolutionary nature of our movement patterns, our brain accommodates much better. It adjusts. And so I have intention, but the fact that you have to uncouple the belief that my swing will be great and then I can be great. Um, I want them to train skills, not technique. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah, that that is... I don't know. I mean, girls are, are I hear bad or worse than guys when it comes to that on that perfection side of things. And I mean, you, you, you probably can, can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I talked to one of, um, I think it's one of my softball friends who does what I do, but on the softball mm-hmm. side. And she was saying that with her girl, she works on this seven out of 10 thing. So a lot of the mm-hmm. girls want to be 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. She says, no, no, no. Perfection is seven out of 10. And I thought that was an interesting tool that she uses with hers i mean there's a time there's a time to push for excellence and perfection and then there's a time to realize that we don't control the game that we're in Mm. and you know you can do everything right and and pick poke a hole in anything that you do i mean we can poke a hole at every major league or swing there is Mm. the goal of the pitcher is to exploit it all right but nobody's infallible to to that everybody has an achilles heel right and so I think what happens is because we can measure it, we overcoach it. And because we overcoach it, we overemphasize it. If we couldn't measure things, right? If we, if it was an abstract concept, kind of like what the mind is, you know, that's why the mind has a little bit more grace associated with it. We try to get, I think we try to lump a lot of things into this concept of mental toughness, which I'm not sure what that is, but, (laughs) um, but I think what, what we do is we, you know, we're always trying to measure and to improve it with this idea that we're going to squeeze the last 1% out of something. And good enough is as good enough in the competition as we can get. It's good enough. It's functional. It works. But the reason that we hang on to technique so hard is that any variation in our technique right now, it's predicting a bad future for us. That's the problem. If I struggled now, what's it going to be like in two weeks, three weeks, four months? The next time I face a pitcher that's getting it up on me quicker than, than I'm used to. If I don't fix that, I'm going to struggle in the future. We fail to understand and appreciate the fact that we adapt naturally. Mm. And so I learned to play baseball in my backyard. And, you know, you, you, you're facing kids that throw harder than you. You quickly figure out how to get your hands through the zone faster because you get tired of getting beat. Mm. But I didn't grow up with, I mean, my dad played college baseball. He was a catcher, so I understood pitching mechanics. But I didn't have somebody sitting behind me after every throw going, oh, you did that one wrong. Oh, you did that one wrong. <laughs> we need to give them grace. You can't learn to ride a bike if somebody's telling you how to pedal the bike mm-hmm. as you're running down the, the driveway. Mm-hmm. Give them time to work through it. it. We don't need to hyper-coach them. So I think a lot of the hyper-coaching leads to that perfectionism, and it feeds each other in a really bad cycle. I, I completely agree. And we had an incident the other day where the guys came back off of a weekend on Monday. Was it this week? It was this week, this Monday, and they had had a a school dance, not saying that that was the correlation causation, but they had had a great week before the prior with practice, very clean with their catch and things like that. And they were doing rundowns on Monday and they were just kind of all all around the field rundown. So, you know, first to second, second to third and third to home pitch, pitcher pickoff type stuff. And they just couldn't play catch. Like it was like a whole other team when they're out there. And then, you know, coach starts yelling. And then the guys start yelling at each other, not, not in a bad way, but Hey, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I just saw this, this tightening go on like this and all their brains do this. And it almost bred more overthrows and throws down into the dirt. 
Any experience so, on that? So, oh, well, yeah. I mean, to me, the first <laughs> thing we can do as the coaches never assume that they're going to be better. Yeah. You know, I think we have to assume that they're going to struggle. And if you look at different factors, you know, I hear coaches all the time say, you know, they came back from break, they look great. Or they came back from a break and I couldn't believe they weren't ready. It was like, well, why would you assume that they were going to be in a better spot? <laughs> why would you assume any of that? That's why you're there is to assume that they're not going to be and to have a plan for it. Instead of being disappointed and angry and then reinforcing the fact that they struggle, use the struggle as a way to show them and teach them how to work through it. Yes, I can be frustrated that their attention and focus is off, but I can also stop it and say, hey, listen, here's the truth. This is what's going to cost us a game. Now, I'm going to leave it up to you guys to figure this out and see who shows back up. Mm-hmm. Now, you teach that ability to rebound. You've taught a lot more than crapping all over somebody. Now, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not saying I don't believe in coaching hard. And I, I mean, because I do, I believe in high demands and high, high reinforcement. Um, and sometimes reinforcement means we got to come come back at them with some some energy, as long as it's appropriate and they're ready for it. Right. But I think at the same time, as coaches, I think a lot of times we get frustrated because if they're struggling, it's a reflection upon us versus this is what I expected. These are high school kids that are coming off of a weekend. Do I really expect them to be dialed in? Mm-hmm. And if we can't expect our pros to do it, why in the heck should I expect my high school kids to do it? Right. You know, a high school kid's going to make the wrong throw in the field at some point. Like it's going to happen. A high school kid's going to fail to get a bunt down. Well, shoot, our major leaguers can't even get bunts down now. <laughs> right. Um, you know, it's, it's like watching a basketball game. People get upset that a guy can't make free throws. It's like he's a 42% shooter from the field. You expect him to be a 93% shooter from the free throw. <laughs> and so we have to be aware of that's why we coach is to lead them through that, to coach them through that. And to help them understand how they can manage it. If they can't manage it and they can't work through it, then we're not teaching them to be better. We're teaching them that, um, that you know, it, it's all about the aversion of, of critique. It's all about the prevention of struggle. And that just creates a really bad model. I agree completely. Um, I want to move on to the subject I really wanted to talk to you about. It. And, uh, and it's on depression and COVID, you know, mm-hmm. COVID, COVID related depression with our athletes. Yeah. Now we're going on what, almost year three of everything that they're going through with the school. Yeah, I think it's a third decade. Third, yeah. Yeah. Third. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Um, what, what do you, and, and, and it leads into oh. some, some tough, tough, uh, talks where, you know, we're talking about suicide rates and things like that. Like what's your, What's your initial analysis? Yeah, there, so as a clinician, and my expertise was in kind of the interplay between the medical and psychological. This is this is a really bad um, this is a really bad convergence of some issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, co- what COVID did is it was a it was a hidden enemy. It is a hidden enemy that we can't see, and the next thing we know, it's attacking the most vulnerable population. We're all having to make sacrifices for it, but it's attacking one of the most vital parts of human experience, which is social connection. The simple use of masking, and I'm not arguing about masking, but it creates a barrier between people and staying away from people. My heart breaks for people who died in the hospital without their family members who didn't have COVID or may have had a positive but died of something else. My stepdad was just in the hospital. My mom couldn't go up there at first. And finally able to go out. And it just breaks my heart to think that our elderly population could not be around their family and 
my stepdad finally got to a spot. He said, you know what? I'm done with this. Mm -hmm. I'm done. I'm not leaving, living the last part of my life Mm -hmm. in a position where I'm not getting to be with my family and I'm not restricting myself. So, so the impact on that, and I'm not arguing the COVID policies don't even, I'm not doing that. Right. Um, But I will say this, the science that we've all argued about, right, is being science or anti-science. The (laughs) science says that the mental health side is going to be the biggest burden that COVID is going to produce. Mm. Okay, yes, we've lost lives. Yes, there are people who have had long-term mortality rates and and all that other stuff. But the pandemic is coming. The real pandemic is coming. Mm. Because what's happening is we're living in a world right now, pre-COVID, where the rates of depression and anxiety were increasing in our youth population because the amount of pressures and demands that they have placed upon them. Now you take their ability to cope. You take school-age kids that have not been able to be in in in-person classes and be free to communicate. They can't have birthday parties without, you know, ridicule. They can't, there's so many things they can't do. Right. And Rightfully so. I mean, whatever. I mean, I'm not arguing that. Mm. But we have to be aware of the the burden on the mental health side. Just this morning in the Wall Street Journal, there was an article about what to do as a parent if your teenager expresses thoughts of suicide. Well, many, many kids express suicidal thought. Okay, it doesn't mean they're going to have intention. And it doesn't mean you have to ignore it. Mm. What it means is that many times people have these thoughts of suicide or or, um, dealing with the pain in, in an ultimate outcome. Um, but what we have to do is raise the conversation. Now, many times parents, we look at it and we say, oh, you know, I didn't have to deal with this when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. It just wasn't as well known and talked about. We all know when I, when I was in sixth grade, we moved to Plano, Texas, when my dad got out of the Air Force. And Plano, Texas was the suicide capital of the world for teenagers. Mm-hmm. There were more kids that were committing suicide per capita there than anywhere because of the pressures and demands of the social society. Um, and first day of sixth grade, I'm going through the orientation and a kid didn't show up because he, he had died by suicide. And, um, and so the th- what I want us to do is to bring the stuff out of the shadows and to talk to our kids, talk to each other and say, look, if you're having these feelings, if you're having these thoughts, it's okay. Like, come talk to me. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to think you're mentally weak. I'm not going to think any of that. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you like you told me if you were having a difficulty breathing. At the same time, every coach should know how, what to do if somebody falls down and has a cardiac arrest, right? Well, the same way, every coach, strength coach, hitting coach, every coach should know what to do if a player comes to them and says, coach, I just don't think about living anymore. And, you know, my, my home life is a wreck and I don't know where to go. And Or a player comes to you and says, little Johnny's, you know, talking about killing himself. We shouldn't go, I don't know what to do. It should be, okay, this is what we do. And so if you're in a school and an organization and you don't have an action plan, you better design one now because it's coming. And we need to get ahead of this. I have strong feelings about what we need to do as a society. I don't think anybody's listening, but I think we need to treat our mental health appointments like we do going to the dentist. I think everybody should have the right to two appointments a year just for healthy checkups. That's why we go to the dentist. You talk to any dentist out there, they'll tell you you don't need to come twice a year, but they got that in there for prevention. And it works. It keeps a regular cycle. We need to do the same thing with mental health. Um, we need to not be afraid to have those conversations. And we, and we also not to be afraid to self-disclose. You know, I, I've dealt with anxiety my entire life. There's times when I felt depressed. Um, and there's times where I've had to seek professional help. And I'm a psychologist. I know these things. I was very fortunate to be raised in a home where my mom was very proactive when it came to mental health issues for her own 
um, healing from her childhood. She had a really tough childhood. And so if it wasn't for that, I probably would have buried a lot of thoughts. And, and, and so I'm very appreciative that it was a front, it was a kitchen table conversation. We need to understand that the, the rates of anxiety, depression are higher now than we ever had. And it's not because these kids are weaker, furthest thing from it. They're stronger than we ever were. It's not because they're harder to coach, furthest thing from it. It's that they've got more pressure on them, more demands on them, more people in their ears, and on a much faster system. If you take a look, I'm 49. When I was in school, the smartest kid in my all-boys Catholic high school college prep thing made a 33 on the ACT. Okay, He was brilliant, got turned down from Stanford. Right, We were shocked. Never seen anybody that smart. Today, you go to my kids' high school, they have six kids a year that have a perfect score on their ACT. Right. And that's insane. And so you ask kids in baseball, it's like, when should you be recruited? Oh, freshman year. Okay. I was five foot three my freshman year. I played one year of varsity baseball and I grew to be six foot five. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, Coach Burtman at LSU gave me an opportunity to come there, redshirt and mature within the program. And he told me, look, you're not going to play until your third or fourth year. And he was right. And, and so we have to understand that there's a long path. Just because your buddy down the street's being recruited doesn't mean that you need to be. And it doesn't mean that if you take care of your business, a coach isn't going to open up a spot for you. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't know. So all those pressures are so true. The other thing, too, that we have to look at from a mental health standpoint is where's our comparison groups? Mm-hmm. You know, social media, mainly Instagram. Instagram has a very negative effect on the female brain. Mm. And the only reason I say females, because that's where it's been studied. Um, We know it's going to have an impact on the male brain too. It's just maybe going to be different, but you know, I can go on there right now and look at somebody playing in California in your region and internalize everything they're doing as it compares to me. Mm. And I'm in the state of Alabama. We, we will never cross paths playing ball until we go to some showcase. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you look at those things. And so, we're not taking breaks. We're not giving kids a rest. Um, you know, we tell every kid that they should play multiple sports. And then the football coach in the school says, well, if you want to play baseball, that's fine, but the summer's mine. Mm. Well, that's when the baseball season is. Right. right? Um, and you know, it's that those pressures. And then the basketball coach is saying, no, you got to play in my travel squad. You know, it's, it's all these things. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the kids, you know, in homework is at a higher rate and kids need to go to the special schools and it's like state university is not good enough anymore. It's all this pressure and we got to get ahead of it because when you start looking at the way kids cope, they cope with isolation, mm-hmm. they cope with um, hopelessness. They feel, you know, sometimes they turn to substances. We got a fentanyl problem in this world mm-hmm. um, that's just continuing to flood into our country. We've got, you know, marijuana increases, which is not good for a developing brain. It's really, really not good, you know, and so, um, you know, you do what you want to do if it's legal in your state after the age of 22, but when your brain is still developing, not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And so we need to create a healthier environment for our kids to, to make it front and center. We know from sports and the Players' Tribune that it's, the talk is getting bigger. It needs to become shouted at the highest mountaintops. And that's my soapbox. I, I agree. And I, and I appreciate you sharing that message. And it's a very important message. Like you said, I think it's a tsunami coming and we just don't, mm-hmm. we don't know it yet. So yep. I appreciate yep. that. So it doesn't quick, need to be seen. It doesn't need to be seen as a secondary thing anymore. It's primary. It, I the, 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 the incidents, the, the financial, the public health impact of depression is 
it's the number two or three cause of disability in the world. Mm. Okay. It's, it's massive. And it, you know, if, if you're a male and, and you have a heart attack and you get depressed after the heart attack, which is very common, you're at, I think a three to four times higher chance of mortality in the first year. Wow. Okay. That's a risk factor. And so we can't, it took a long time for us to get cardiologists to start doing depression screens mm. and say, this is as much as a risk factor is some of the other factors that you look at. It is that important. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. I agree with you. I think it's a, it's, it's coming, it's coming. Yep. So hopefully, hopefully yep. we, you know, you, you keep doing your great work out there in Alabama and, and hopefully we spread that word out so that people get, get the word. Um, so before I let you go, be respectful of your time. Where can people find you? Do you have any, so that could be socials. That could be the website. I know we mentioned sure. in the beginning, um, any kind of workshops or anything coming up. Yeah, so I've got a, a video workshop coming. Um, it'll be just essentially a mental game one-on-one style thing to look at some of the foundations of the mental game. I just wrote a book in uh, before Christmas called Break Free from Suckville, which is how to break away from your expectations and start working on improving your reality. Sure. You can find all of that at brettmccabe.com. And you can also follow me on social. I answer every DM. I, I do all that. I love that. Um, you know, I, I, to me, the more we get the word out, the more we empower our players, our coaches, our parents to build a better foundation for our youth sports, the better we're going to be. I was fortunate. I had tremendous sports parents. I couldn't have asked for anything better, mm -hmm. but I know that not everybody does. And so I want to make sure I pay it forward. Love that. And you're, and you are a giver. And if you've, if you're a friend of Brian Eisenberg and Sammy, you're a friend of mine. And I, I, I just that. hope, like you said, people take action if they see the signs and, and uh, help us all kind of get in this fight and battle. So absolutely appreciate your time, Dr. Brett you McCabe. I know you got a, I got, you got a brand new athlete that you got to talk to. So let's go roll tide, right? So, <laughs> all right, that's brother. What I do. That's what I do. I'll talk right. to you later. Thank you all so right. much. We'll see you. Bye-bye.